Well, amen, amen. That's some good music. That young man that was uh, singing there, he's uh, with uh, one of our state partners in Texas. Um, the Baptist Convention here in this state has a partnership with uh, the Baptist Convention, one of the Baptist Conventions in Texas, and he's part of their church strengthening program, and they're helping churches that are struggling like we are in this time of COVID and trying to get their uh, help, help us with our music, and so we're very grateful that uh, he was, um, that they were willing to do that for us and give us the rights to be able to um, broadcast that um, on our Facebook page. So um, again, I want to thank you so much for coming, and let's go ahead and go before the Lord in prayer as we prepare for our hearts for opening the, the, the Word of God. Father, we love you again, and we thank you so much. Lord, we know the needs in our congregation and our community are diverse and many. Father, we know that the enemy is, is, is always roaming wherever he can to try to, to destroy, devour, and cripple your kingdom and its growth. Father, we ask that uh, even in this time when our nation is under turmoil, the elections are happening, uh, that many people are sick and we have a lot of quarantines and all these things that are hitting us from all these different sides. Father, I ask that you'll give us a sense of peace in our center, in our core that when we seek to follow you, Lord, that you will open up opportunities and avenues for us to do that. Father, I ask that you continue to guide uh, me as I am seeking to honor you and to serve you. Father, we ask that you will just continue to guide us as we, um, as we seek to... Father, I just ask that you will continue to guide me as I seek to honor you and serve you in the preaching of your word. Father, it's not easy going through some of these books of prophecy. And there's so many different interpretations. But trying to figure out what it is you really meant when you gave us these wonderful passages of future history. Father, I ask that you'll just allow our hearts to be open to the possibilities of what you have for us. And that we might seek to honor and serve you um, with everything we learn. And that we might be able to take the things that you talk about in this book and apply them to our everyday life and use them to encourage others in their walk with Christ as you've encouraged us through the reading of your word. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we just put this completely in your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, um, I encourage you to open up to the book of uh, Daniel. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 7. And I tell you, this is um, it's a powerful book. Um, Wow. Every time that I open up this thing, every time I begin to start really diving deep into this, it just blows me away at the incredible accuracy and the amazingness of God's Word. Um, it just, it really truly is astounding that God, you know, thousands of years ago, uh, wrote all this stuff down, used the prophet Daniel, and uh, was able to bring forth uh, some of this great and wonderful knowledge to us. Um, this is the last chapter, chapter 7, that was written in Aramaic. And this is an incredibly important chapter. I know a lot of people ask, why do we study the book of Daniel? Why are we going through the book of Daniel? I think largely it's because we're in the midst of an incredibly tumultuous time in our history. 
Uh, we have a lot of things that are happening to us now that I think are reflected in Scripture. And we should we should look at this time. I, you know, I just got finished talking to one of our church members, and, and they were telling me that you know, they just don't want to live their life in fear. And it seems like there's a lot of fear right now that's permeating our culture, and there is. And there's no doubt that the fear can rise up and cause lots of problems in our life. But we need to realize that... We may, although we don't need to live in a state of fear where fear controls us, we still need to have a healthy respect for what God has done for us. Um, one of the analogies I use a lot, a lot of the time is, is, you know, if you look at the fiery furnace incident with the three young Jewish boys, and they simply said to Nebuchadnezzar, yes, our God is able to, to keep us from being burnt up in this fire, but if he doesn't choose to, it doesn't mean he's not able. He's still our God, and we're still going to serve him. Um, and But the same respect, those boys didn't willingly jump into the fire. They still had to be thrown into the fire. Um, you know, we know that the fire ultimately didn't burn them, but they weren't too keen on sticking their hands in there. Um, and that's something we need to think about, too, is, is we don't allow fear to rule our lives, but we also don't want to put ourselves in situations where we're going to intentionally um, tempt God and tempt uh, uh, our health and safety. So that being said, we're going to be in the last of this in chapter 7 in Daniel. It's the last chapter that's written in Aramaic. And there's also something that's incredibly important in this chapter, and that is that it is one of two chapters that talk about um, the Gentile dispersion and, and the time of the Gentiles. Um, in Luke chapter 21, I want you, if you can, uh, flip over, keep your finger in, in Daniel chapter 7, but I just want to set the stage right. So in Luke chapter 24, Jesus is talking to his disciples about end times. I'm sorry, chapter 21, verse, verses 10 through 24. And Daniel is, or uh, Luke is, is, is recording this. This is a discussion that Jesus has with his disciples about end time theology, end time philosophy, end time things. And he says in verse 10 of chapter 21 in the book of Luke, Jesus talking to his disciples says this. He says, Nations will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places on the earth, plagues and famines. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will, um, they will lay their hands on you and they will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and to the prisons, bringing you before the kings and the governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Verse 14. So make up your minds not to uh, make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourself. For I will give you utterance and wisdom, and none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair on your head will perish. By your own endurance, by your by, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. And he goes on. Jesus continues. He says, "But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, recognize that their desolation is near." He's talking about a future event that's going to happen in the life of Jerusalem. Um, that's the destruction of Titus in 70 A.D. Um, the Roman the Roman conqueror. In verse 21, it says, "And when those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that." 
all these things which are written will be fulfilled. And woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. He's talking to the Jews, okay? Verse 24. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive unto all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. This idea, the time of the Gentiles, Jesus was talking about in Luke and it's, he was referencing this area. And it's interesting when you look at uh, biblical history and you look at prophecy in the Bible, it's amazing to me how prophecy and biblical history is always, 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 always written through the lens of Israel. Everything that happens in the history and the prophecy of, uh, of, of the lives of, of, of the nation of Israel is all about the nation of Israel. It's all through that singular lens. Even Jesus himself said he came to seek and save those that were lost, referring to the lost uh, in the tribes of Israel. He's not referring to the Gentiles. In fact, when a Gentile woman came to him and said, hey, you're, uh, you know, I need what you were offering, he's like, should I take the food from the, from the table of those who I've given come into and give them to the dogs? And she, of course, replies, even the dogs can eat the crumbs from their master's tables. And, and Jesus was so moved and, and, and still spoke words of wisdom to her. But the idea here is that the Bible always um, displays and views history, both past history and future history, Follow me there, future history. Um, in, in Through the lens of Israel, except in two places. Those places are found both in the book of Daniel. The first place is in chapter 2 in the book of Daniel. And the second place is in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. And so these are the only two chapters that we have that were A, written in Aramaic, and written and B, written to directly the times of the Gentiles that Jesus was alluding to. Um, and the, the idea here is this times of the, of the Gentiles begins with the destruction of Israel in, by Nebuchadnezzar when the Babylonians fully came in. And from that point to now, Israel has never had their full status as being a nation. And so the, we are living in the times of the Gentiles. It started during the age of, of, of Nebuchadnezzar and has been ongoing all the way through that. And this, this vision in chapter 7 directly deals with that. This particular book, um, in this particular chapter, is one of the most important chapters in the entire book of Daniel. We learn more about this. There's so many more details about the future events that are going to take place that have yet to yet in our lives um, in this particular chapter than almost any other chapter in, in, in the entire Bible. And so... We need to turn to this. Um, we need to look at this. So, starting with uh, chapter 7 in the book of Daniel, um, looking in the first verse, I'm going to just read a few verses. We're going to try to go through as best we can and still try to keep our time, you know, as 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 cohesive as we possibly can. So, um, verse seven, uh, verse 1, chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And then he lay... And then he, and, uh, say, and then he wrote 
the dream down and related the following summary of it. Verse 2. This is where it shifts. For the first time now, Daniel is writing, he's no longer writing the narrative historical format where he was writing in the third person, or in the case of Nebuchadnezzar when he wrote chapter 4, he was writing in the first person. But Daniel has yet to actually emerge as a voice in this book. He has up to this point been just recounting history. Now he is taking a different stance. He's actually shifting his entire way of writing style from third person to first person. This is now a direct thing. This is what he is seeing. He said, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts coming up from the sea, different from one another. Now, it just starts right off with the idea of, of two, two competing imageries. You've got the wind that's stirring up. That word wind, when it's translated into the Hebrew, it's rock. And it's the same word we get when we go into the Hebrew, uh, from the Hebrew into the Greek, and it gives us the word spirit. So it's the same um, idea there that the spirit of God or the spirit is being moved up. So we see the four winds, the word ruach that's there, these are, are, are stirring up. And where do these winds come from? They come from heaven. So again, this reinforces that narrative that we see that flows through the entire book of Daniel. And that says, regardless of what's happening in the world, God is in control. God is on the throne. God is in, he is the impetus behind everything. He is the causal event that creates uh, everything that's going to happen throughout all of time. God is in control. He is sovereign. And it says these four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. That word stirring up, another word that would be translated, would be a good translation for it, would be bursting forth. It was so tumultuous and so packed that the, the, the waves and everything was just was bursting up. It was, it was the most tumultuous thing in the world. And for a Jew, and by the way, the Jews were not very good sailors. In fact, um, all throughout their history, both in the Bible and outside the Bible, we see that the Jews were, were, were terrible seem, uh, sailors. They just weren't very good at it. Um, and so you see that oftentimes the sea has always been a, um, uh, an analogy, if you will, of... Um, How's the best way to put it? But I guess chaos. The chaos of the universe, chaos of the world, chaos and evil. And so you see that imagery put, put forth, and we see that stirring up the great sea, the, the great sea, the metaphor that he's using here is obviously um, referencing the Mediterranean, but we don't want to hold ourselves too closely to that sea imagery because it's going to change a little bit later as we get into this chapter um, to the earth. And we'll see that. And then he talks about four great beasts that were coming up out of the sea, and all four of these beasts were different. And we get, we get an image of these beasts, and we see that this vision is, is directly linked to Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2. And it's clear that God is, is using a similarity in visions and giving a greater clarity in how that vision was going to play out, specifically how the final fourth kingdom that uh, we're going to talk about a little bit today. And so um, he talks about the, the, the animals. The first three animals, he just sort of gives us an overview. The first had wings like an eagle. And, while, and the wings were plucked off. It was lifted up from the ground, made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. This is obvious that he's referring to uh, Babylon during that day. Anybody that would have read this would have said, oh yeah, he's talking about Babylon. Because the two images that, that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon had to define their nation was uh, the lions and the eagles. And they oftentimes had in their statuary 
um, lions with the wings of eagles. But I find it interesting that it talks about how um, the wings were plucked off or plucked up and he was lifted up and set on and made to stand on two feet like a, like a man. Obviously giving reference to what happened at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life when his pride had gotten too big and uh, how he actually went through that moment where he came to acknowledge the one true God as the God of the universe. And that, I think that's a good allusion for that. We go on to the next beast. Um, it resembled a bear and it was raised up on one side and there were three ribs um, and the three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth and thus they were said arise to devour much meat. This is obviously giving reference to the Medes and the Persians. Um, I find it interesting that you see here that it says that the bear, uh, one side of it was raised up over the other, obviously giving the illusion and the idea that the, in the Medo-Persian Empire the Persians really had the greater degree of power and eventually um, uh, we stopped talking about the Medo-Persian Empire and we just talked about the Persian Empire. Um, but we also find it find it interesting with the three um, the three ribs that are in the bear's mouth. These ribs ref reference reference uh, the three big battles that really created uh, the Medes and the Persians: the conquering of the Babylon, the conquering of Egypt, um, and one other. And I didn't write down my notes, and I apologize. But there were three basically large battles that allowed um, the the um, the Babylonians uh, to rise up and become, or the Medes and the Persians to rise up and become a force to be reckoned with. And the third beast um, was, uh, it says here, and after this they kept looking, behold, another one like a leopard, um, which on its back had four wings of a bird. Um, I think King James says the four bird, wings of a fowl. And the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, we can go on and talk about this quite a bit. Obviously, uh, we're looking at this in the lens of past history. Um, the leopard was a clear symbol uh, that was used by Alexander the Great. Uh, we know that he was, uh, the wings give the idea that he was swift to move. We know that he was, uh, he conquered the entire known world before the age of 30. Um, and rumor has it that he uh, fell down on his bed and cried, uh, stuck his sword in the sand because there was nothing left to conquer. Uh, and at the end of his life, which was not much longer after he conquered everything, after he set up his capital in Babylon, by the way, uh, after that all happened and he died, his kingdom was split up into four pieces and each of his four generals took a piece. And so obviously that's in reference to that. We know that happened, although this happened after Daniel's death. So this is, for Daniel, this was future history. For us, this is just history history. Um, and then he gets to verse 7. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on the first three beasts, largely because... Daniel didn't spend a lot of time. He understood it. He got it. He knew it. He already had this vision from Nebuchadnezzar, and this was clear to him. It was verse 7 and the fourth beast that causes the rest of his frustration and consternation throughout the, the rest of this chapter and probably the rest of his life. Um, so, chapters, uh, verse 7 says this, After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast came up, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the other beasts that, that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now I'm going to stop there right now just to go over this, because I think it's important that we, we sort of look at this and try to lay some ground rules. Um, when dealing with biblical history, it's one thing. It's obvious. We just read the history of it. But when we deal with biblical prophecy, we need to be very careful about how we interpret this. Um, and the best way to do it really is just to try to take as, as literal approach as we can and understand that the writers were writing what they saw. They were writing what they saw. 
They weren't interpreting this. They weren't trying to stylize it or put in imagery to accomplish a goal. They were just simply recounting what they saw. It's up to God to define, uh, and he does for the most part, um, the areas that are important to us. He doesn't give us all the information, but he does give us some very important information at the end of this chapter. But we need to make sure that we're focused on what God is actually clearly saying here. And the other thing is we need to ask ourselves, um, when the prophet originally wrote this, what relevance did this have to the, the nation of Israel? We're talking about future history here for them. Uh, what relevance would it be for them? Why did God give it to them? Why not wait until these events happened and played out and then give it to us? If all he really wanted to do was focus on that fourth beast, the one that was going to be uh, the age of the Gentiles, which is what we're going to talk about here, and, and sort of the consummation of that as we kind of talk about the Antichrist and all these other things that come in to play in this chapter, you know, do we ask ourselves... Um, what relevance does all that have to the, to the Jews of the day? And I think it's important that we that we look at that because for them, for the Jews, they needed to know some things. And I think it's something that we need to know about as well. And that is that it was telling the Jews then, just like it's telling us today, that we will endure. The idea that we have these eschatological promises, that means promises of future events that are going to happen, these promises of, of a better time and a better life and a better place that's prepared for us, that's out there, is always encouraging to believers, both in the days of Daniel and to the days of us today as we're here. But we also need to look at this, uh, this entire vision in the way Daniel was writing this. It really is a turning point um, in from away from the history of the of, that was recounted before and into this vision formatted, and we also know that that Daniel was writing this because he wanted to to lay the groundwork for what is going to come. Chapter seven is like this transitional chapter between the narrative history and the future events of the lives of of, of the of, of the children of Israel, and so Daniel is putting all this down, getting it prepared, and now we get into this into this really cryptic um, vision. Verse 7 begins something that's just so out there. In fact, Daniel, who was able to ascribe um, uh, names of animals in his vision up to this point, he talked about a bear, he talked about a lion, he talked about eagles, he talked about a leopard, but at this point, he comes across a, a, a beast that's so unbelievable, it defies description. His best description of it is, is that it's dreadful and terrifying. And it's incredibly strong. It's huge. He does talk about its iron teeth. He does talk about a little later its brass or bronze claws. Um, but that's all we have on this thing. It devours, it crushes, it tramples down, and it had ten horns. Man, that's an incredible vision of a beast as it's coming forth. This horn, and, and we start looking at the horns, we start looking at this, the only things we know about it is that it's strong, it's terrifying, it's dreadful, it has iron teeth, and it has horns. The horns in Old Testament prophecy and, and Old Testament um, uh, uh, terminology is always idiomatic of 
power. The horns of the animal were always where the power of the beast was. And we see that mostly in the naturalistic view of, of life where you see the two rams that, that, that clash with their horns or the, or the other animals in the animal kingdom that use their horns to, to prove how strong they are in front of the, uh, the females and the herd so that they can acquire the, and attract the mates that are necessary. Um, so we know that power is found within the horns. And so we know having ten horns was, was symptomatic of being incredibly powerful. And Daniel says, while he was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among the other three, uh, among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like that, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. One of the other um, running themes throughout the book of Daniel is the idea that pride uh, comes before a fall. We've talked before in the past that pride is really the ministry killer. Pride is, is, is the relationship killer. Anytime that we have pride in our life, we know that we are not where God wants us to be. We are where the devil wants us to be. Because we know that that um, the New Testament talks about the three uh, the three pronged attack that the enemy loves to do, whereas the root of all sin, which is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, um, and so those three areas is what the enemy uses to come at us. And I find that pride is one of those things. It, it, it ultimately has its root in idolatry, but it tends to be the one thing that keeps us from being what God wants us to be fully. And says that this um, that this this little horn grows up among the first horns. And this little horn, it, by growing up, it actually pulls out the roots before it. And I want you to be thinking about that. We're going to sort of uh, uh, talk a little bit more about that a little bit later in this message. Uh, but I want that imagery to be stuck in your head because he, Daniel can't get it out of his mind. He just can't. And so the Bible says in verse 9, we're going to come back to those to the horn and the boast and the mouth and the eyes. Just hold that in your mind as we move on. Um, verse 9 talks about this beautiful picture, which is actually the inspiration of the title of this message, which is the title of the message is The Ancient of Days. Daniel gives us one of the most amazing images and pictures of Jesus and God, right? And so we see this here. This says... I kept looking, and thrones were set up. Now, I know in some versions it has that thrones were cast down, but that's not an accurate translation. The New American Standard has this. The New King James has it, that the thrones were set up. Okay, thrones, plural, thrones. Keep that in your mind. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And the Ancient of Days took his seat among those thrones. Think about that. Just follow with me, if you will. And his vestiture, his, his clothing was, was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, and wheels were burning, uh, were burn, and there were, it had, its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing out, coming um, out before him, and thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him, and the court sat, and the books were open. This is an important statement. Um, there's a great book out there that talks about this particular chapter and many others. Uh, um, in reference to an idea of understanding what these thrones were and what this idea of the court that sat, okay? So he's using imagery that would have been recognizable to anyone who understood the Oriental Persian culture and the, and the courtrooms the, where the king sat and the king and his advisors would sit. And the book is entitled The Unseen Kingdom. The, the author, I think, is Michael Hesher. Um, and he talks about the idea that this imagery of an of of a of a 
a heavenly council um, is scattered all throughout the Old Testament and well into the New. In fact, in Revelation, uh, it talks about this directly. Revelation talks about um, the, the, the 24 elders that sat on thrones before God that would help administer um, the, the universe. And we see that this is a concept that was then as it is now. The idea that God has a council, if you will, of advisors. Not that he needs advice. We see this a little bit played out in the book of Job, where Job um, is uh, recounts in the very beginning of it that the sons of God came before, the children of God came before um, the throne of God and discussed with him. And there was a discussion there about Satan, the adversary that, that stood up and, and, and was the accuser of Job, and, and how we had a lot of discussion that was happening in that area. And it gave an image of an oriental court that's very similar to what we see here. And we see that ancient of days, God who takes his seat, his throne that's above all the other thrones. And, and then the other thrones that are set up, they would have this, this council. And we see that after God had sat, he took his seat first. And then after that was all done, the descriptions of him came out, the court sat second. And then the books were open. And then we get a beautiful picture here um, that Daniel gives. He says, Because then I kept looking, uh, because the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was slain, its body was destroyed and given to a burning fire. The idea that this horn was going to continue to speak few um, horrendous things about God for a time. And when that time was up, his body would be destroyed and he would be cast into that burning lake of fire. We're definitely talking about a future time that is yet to happen. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. Verse 12 is a direct contrast to verse 6, where it says their dominion was given to it, right? Which gives the idea that God is in control. Right now, we're getting ready to face one of the most, well, in my lifetime, granted it's not as long as some, but I'm 50 years old. And in my lifetime, I've never seen a more contentious uh, round of political turmoil in, that I've ever seen in my life. Now, granted, I didn't go through the 60s. I wasn't there during the race um, discussions. I wasn't there when they had um, the, the, all the different turmoil that was going on in that particular culture. So I don't understand it. I'm not going to compare what I don't know to what I don't know. But I will say this, that I in my life have never seen a more contentious time in a, in a, in a nation that's as divided as it's ever been in my life. And it's, it's kind of a scary time. And we should be a little bit afraid. We should look at some of these things and we should not, and I'm not saying let fear rule us, but there is a healthy amount of fear that should be there. We should be paying attention to what's happening. We ought to know what's going on, not so that we can be afraid, but so that we can be prepared for what God has for us. But we see this now in this vision, that this body is destroyed, it's sent away, their dominion was taken away, the beasts that were there, and an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. In some of the versions, it talks about times and times and a half, and this is where we get into the idea of the weeks, which we're going to see in, in chapter 9 as we start to dive into the deeper prophecy that Daniel expounds on this. I'm not going to do a whole lot of exposition on this particular passage, but it's something that you should circle, underline, however you can, and come back to it, because we're going to discuss it, um, but not today. Um, now, verse 13, Daniel is continuing to look, right? He's looking at these visions, um, and he's beholding the clouds of heaven, and he, then he sees these clouds, 
part and one like the Son of Man was coming and he came up to the Ancient of Days and this is the coronation scene of the king. It's very similar to what we see in Revelation when it talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb and how the Lamb that was slain was given the authority to be able to open up the seals. And so this is a, an, a different way of writing similar uh, a similar thing to what happened in, in Revelation. This is the Son of Man obviously coming for the King uh, the Ancient of Days which we know is God and he's being presented to him dominion. And again we see dominion has been taken away from the enemy and given fully to God or fully to Jesus. We know that the Son of Man is Jesus. And glory and a kingdom that are all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion will be an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So it's a beautiful picture of the coronation of the king. That second coming if you will as Jesus is finally presented as the king of the universe. As the son of the living God. As the second part of the trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we see this here. Now how do we say that? This idea that the son of man was, was borrowed. This imagery was borrowed from Isaiah. God used this through the Holy Spirit urgings is writing Daniel and showing him this vision. And this terminology, son of man, was borrowed from Isaiah, was copied here, was carried on in other areas in the Old Testament and brought all the way through to Jesus himself when he defined himself this way. He described himself as the son of man. He described himself as the one that will receive dominion that Daniel talked about. And Daniel says, as for me, I was watching this and I was distressed. My spirit was ripped apart literally inside me and I was scared, slapped to death. That's, that's a, as good a translation as you can possibly get. Daniel was freaked out. It was beyond his capacity to understand what was going on. He did not know where God was going with this. And it scared him. Scared him to his core. It, he didn't know what to make of this vision. He didn't know what was going to happen in all this. And all he knew is that some of this was going to pertain to the kingdom that he was at. Remember, this was in the third, first year of, of Belshazzar. This is before Babylon had been, um, been overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. This is before the, the battle that happened... Um, when the Medes were starting on the rise. This is during a time when the, when, the per, when, the, when the Babylonians were still somewhat at the top of their game. And so we see now that Daniel that Daniel's looking at this and he's scared because he knows the future is up in the air. He knows that his good friend and the king that he loved, Nebuchadnezzar, is no more. He knows it. He knows it. And now he has, to, he has to figure out what is going to come next. And he's in his 60s, almost 70 years old when this vision came about. And he's trying to figure out what it is God is trying to show him. And so he says, I'm distressed. And so he approached, in this vision, he approached one of those who was standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Um, now we know that a full uh, translation of this dream was not given to him. It was just the, the bits that really scared him the most. That was that fourth beast. That fourth beast is the one that really ripped him apart. And so we see a similar, um, a similar construction here that we saw in the book of Revelation when John was uh, having those great visions and he turned to the one that was with him and he asked him, what does this mean? And the man uh, in the vision gave him the answers, obviously an angel and a, uh, a representative of God, they gave him the answers. And we see the same thing here. We get a, a very short, very terse summation, two-verse summation of the visions. He says, these great, the, the person sort of turned to him and gave him this, this translation, verse 17, 
It says, These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. From a four. Now remember I told you we can't get too tied to that, that uh, the, the vision of the great sea. That's because the shifting from the great sea to the great earth, obviously it's talking about the rise of mankind, these, these, these human kings. And the saints um, of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. That's the, that's the short, 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 short version of it, right? But then Daniel's like, well, that's just not good enough. I need no more. I need to have more. This is not, I, I need to know what's going on. Verse 19 says, I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast. Tell me what it meant. It was incredible. It was just so different from the other ones. I need to know. And he gives a, a more clearer description of it. Still, exceedingly uh, dreadful. Its teeth were of iron. But we get the claws of bronze. It devoured, crushed, trampled down the remainder with his feet. The remainder with his feet. And the meaning of the ten horns. There were on its hand, and the other horn that came up before it, and the three of them had, um, and three of them which were pulled out, and, and the horn which had um, the eyes and mouth uttering great boasts, which was larger in appearance than its associates. This is incredibly convoluted and much debated verse or set of verses, um, trying to figure out what this meant and what these what these horns represent. You know, it's like every time that we turn around, we say things like, and I've said this before when we're talking about Book of Daniel, the idea that, that uh, the United States is never listed in Scripture and prophecy. Well, I think that's wrong. Um, that's not correct. I think what it is is that we are interpreting this from our own historical perspective, and we don't want to be the bad nation. We don't want to be the bad guys. And so it's easiest to point our fingers. And so when the European Union had their 10 members in, their, in the European Union, we were like, oh, that's the one. And then we said, oh, and the Catholic Church is so strong. And that must be the little horn because those of us who are not Catholic are like, yeah, because, you know, they're Catholic and we're not. But the problem is, is that we don't know. We don't have a clear understanding of this. And we can point to things in the past, but I think we're talking about stuff that is yet to happen. I think that there are things that we that have yet to come about. I mean, if you want to, we could easily ascribe this to America, to to the United States of America. And think about think about it. We had one one little horn that popped up. That means that little horn meant that the other horns were established and they've been there for a long time. Then all of a sudden, this Johnny Come Lately horn pops up, and in the popping up, three of the other big horns that were there were pushed out and destroyed. Right. So let's think about that. The United States of America is one of the youngest countries um, of the big countries that are out there. We are the youngest on the block. We are the new kid on the block, if you will. And so we could easily be that little horn. And when we came up, we, we displaced other horns. What's the first horn? Which, remember, if horns represent kings, we know that because the, the, the fellow is going to tell us that in a minute in this, in this narrative. If the horns represent kingdoms, the first kingdom that we displaced when we came up to power was England. They've never been as strong a power since we broke off and had the Revolutionary War. They declined as we grew stronger, right? And then after that, we've had two other great world powers that we also helped unseat, Japan and Germany, twice with Germany. Wow. That's three horns right there that we could have. So I can make a very good argument that this little horn is America. I don't want it to be because you start looking at this little horn because it talks about uttering boasts. We know that from a previous part of this vision that this, this little horn represented um, uh, the Antichrist that's going to be plucked out, that's going to be thrown away and burned. We don't want to be part of that. So it's kind of makes us a little nervous and we don't know. 
But I encourage you to look at Revelation chapter 13. Read it again. And try to look at it with an unbiased perspective. Don't put it, don't look in the perspective of we're America, we're great, and we're all follow and serve God because we're a Christian nation. Because I'll tell you, I can make a really good argument the United States is no longer a Christian nation. There are many nations around the world that have, have, have drawn closer to God and they look at us as being incredibly ungodly. Well, we've got people in China that want to send missionaries to America because they think America is unchurched. We know we got an issue. Okay? And we do. So, I just want you to keep that in your mind because we see now in verse 21... The Bible says that, that um, again, Daniel's talking to this individual, trying to get in some information. He says, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. In, in one version, has this wearing them down. This, is, this has not happened yet. This has not happened yet. It's getting there. There may have been times in our history where the saints of God have been worn down, have been overpowered, but we're still a force to be reckoned with, reckoned with in this world. And I think that that's something to think about in this time of, of, of election. When we're getting ready to go to the polls and vote, I'm not going to tell anybody how to vote. I think the Holy Spirit, that's his job. But we should all vote our conscience. We should vote what the Holy Spirit tells us to vote. We should be consistent with biblical principles. We should vote for the, 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 the candidates that embodied the majority of, of, the, of, the, of the biblical principles that we, uh, uh, that we ascribe to. But that's, that's how we should vote our conscience. But I'm telling you now that the Christian vote is still a powerful one. We have yet to be worn down to where we are running for the hills seeking to hide because we're going to be destroyed. That's happened in other nations. And it may very well happen in this nation. And we can see the beginning of that happening. But we ought to mark down verse 21 and put our, put our, our, our parentheses around it, underline that last part where it says that the saints were overpowered by, these, by this horn, by the armies of this horn that was waging war against the saints. Verse 22 says, Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints and the highest of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. That is yet to happen. We have not taken possession. This is, this is completely end time stuff here. We are not there yet, but we're getting close. We're getting close. Every day we get closer and closer. I don't know when the last day that God is going to deal with the, 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 the depravity of mankind before he calls an end to it and says, that's it, I'm done. I don't know when his patience will, will be full. I don't know when, when Jesus talks about the time of the Gentiles being fulfilled, I don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but I know it's coming soon. I feel like it's coming soon. Verse 23. The force, uh, now this was given, this was, the, this was the response given back to him. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be the fourth kingdom of earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms that have ever been. And it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. This is yet to happen, guys. But I'll tell you right now, again, I hate to keep coming back to the American theme, but let's think about that for a second. When America goes through depression, do the other nations in the world feel it? I think so. When America has problems financially, does the rest of the world have problems? Yeah. You know, there's a reason why other countries feel like America is acting as imperialists with the idea that we're building an empire. I've lived overseas. I've lived among people in Europe. And let me tell you something. The young people in Europe, they look at America as being imperialistic. Like we're building an empire. We may not be doing it by putting boots on the ground, although sometimes we do. 
But in their mindset, because of our economic dominance and our military might, we are pushing our own agendas above all else. Now, I don't think that we've completely taken over the earth as the United States uh, has done. I don't think, that we, again, we're not there yet. And I'm not saying that there not, might not be another country that will rise up, um, that will be greater than the one that we're in right now. But I think we need to understand that we shouldn't be so egocentric and think that our ethnocentric, that we think our culture is the greatest, because obviously I think there are some issues here. Look what it says in verse 23. Since the whole earth will be tread underneath it and crushed. Verse 24. And as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. Again, this is a restatement of the horn ideology. And another one will arise after them, and will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue those three kings. And he will speak out against the Most High, and wear down the saints of the highest one. And they will intend to make alterations in the times and the law. And they will be given into the hand for time, times, and and a half half a time. And the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away and annihilated and destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty of the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. And his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. And as for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarmed. And my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Basically, he just wrote it down because the Holy Spirit told him to, but he didn't share this with everybody to start off with because he wasn't commanded to. It's a pretty intense passage. This is a passage that's speaking about us. It's speaking potentially about our times. Jesus spoke more, he quoted more from the book of Daniel than he did from any other single book. There was a lot of prophecy that's mentioned in here. And this particular chapter is really the, is, is one of the most important chapters that we, can, that we can read because it's telling us that it's going to get worse before it gets better. But it will get better. Now, I guess the takeaway of this is, is what, you know, is Bible, whenever we're studying Bible history or prophecy, we need to ask ourselves, so what? Just like I mentioned earlier in this message, so what? All these things are true. All these things are possible. I get it. But so what? How does this apply to us today? I'm going to tell you how this applies to us today. The reality is that the world is a dangerous place. The enemy is a roaring roaring lion seeking whom he may devour as he traverses the whole earth. We are in a time where we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities of this present age. We are in a time where we are basically fighting for the life of the church. And we have to ask ourselves, are we going to let it die, or are we going to build it up? Just because these images talk about a destruction of a time place doesn't mean exactly it's now. Every age they have thought that they were in the end times, from Peter all the way to us. We don't know when the end time is going to be, but we know that we get closer every day. And so we need to take heart and understand that through all of this, this entire chapter talks about God is on the throne. He is in control. He is in charge. And whether we're talking about future history that is yet to happen or past history that has already happened, we know that God has always been in control. Are you going through struggles in your life? Are you going through a time where you feel like you're battered and beaten on every side? Do you feel like sometimes you're under siege? I talked to an individual uh, for the past couple of weeks. We've been, uh, or this individual and I have been talking quite a bit. 
And they were telling me, it just seems like every time you turn around, there's another hit coming their way. And they can barely have a chance to get up and get a breath of air before they're knocked underwater yet again. And they were asking me, they were saying, you know, when is it going to stop? Why is this happening to me? If you're asking those questions and you're reading this chapter and you read verse 21 where it says that, that there's this war that's going to be waged and we're going to be worn down, overpowered, you know, and you say, I'm, I'm, I'm right there now. I'm worn down. I'm being overpowered. I can't seem to catch my breath. I can't seem to get my feet underneath me. I'm telling you now that God was faithful before and he'll be faithful again and he is faithful right now. If you're going through those times, the best thing you can do is look back in the history at a time when, when God had your back and he carried you through those dark times. Because I can promise you this, just as he was faithful then, he will be faithful with you now, just as he's going to be faithful to you in the future when you get to that place. So I encourage you to look at that. We need to stand firm to know that there is a better thing coming. That when Jesus says, I go now to prepare a place for you, that you might come and be with me. That's a vision of a future time that is yet to happen. We haven't gotten there yet. Heaven is not complete. The time of Gentiles is not done. He is still preparing a place for us. There will come a day when God will say, enough, we're done. Everything is ready. The time of Gentiles is fulfilled. Heaven is prepared. He will send forth his angel. He will call his saints home. And we will see the beginning of the end times truly unfold in front of us. But until that happens, God has your back. He loves you. He wants you to know that no matter what's going on, He is in control. He will carry you through the time of darkness to a time of light. Be patient. Be faithful. And stand in His love. That's what He has to say to you. So if you're sitting there today and you're listening to this, I urge you, I urge you, please, reach out to somebody. Send a message to us on, on, uh, on the church Facebook page. Um, if, you're, if you see somebody that's in the chat, please incur, be encouraged and know that they will, they will reach out to you. Reach out to one of us. We'll be more than happy to talk to you about how to come to know Christ as your Savior. In fact, we'll even put up in the, in the, chat, um, in the chat window uh, a plan, a pathway of salvation that's on our website. And I encourage you, as you're looking for um, a, pl a plan, a pathway to move forward, God has some next steps for you. You just have to ask him what's next. He will reveal it to you. For those of us that are, that, that are Christians, those of us that, are, that love him and are called according to his purpose, take heart. Even in the tumultuous time that we're in, God is still in control. And no matter what man or woman sits in the Oval Office as President of the United States, God is still King of the Universe. And he is still the one that puts those in power and tears those down. And I encourage you to take heart and know that God is in control. We're going to go ahead and go before the Lord in prayer. And after we're done with the, um, the prayer, we're not going to have a closing song. But I encourage you guys to take the rest of this week and meditate on chapter 7 in the book of Daniel. Read it several times. Look at some of the other passages that are found. Look at Matthew chapter 16. Look at Revelation chapter 13. Look at Luke chapter 21 verses 10 through 24. And, and use those times of study to be encouraged by the, by the fact that God is in control.
Let's go ahead and go before the Lord in prayer as we finish out. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for the day you've given us. Lord, I know that this is, we've been a little long. We're going uh, deeper into this than, than maybe we, we have time to really unfold. But Father, we know that you're still in control. Father, I ask that if there's anyone under the sound of my voice that's watching this either this morning or in the week to come that needs to know you as their personal Savior, Father, I ask that you will make yourself real to them in no uncertain terms and that you'll give them somebody that they can talk to. If not somebody in the, in a, that's currently watching right now or, or somebody that has watched in, in, in days past, Father, we ask that you will just allow these individuals to reach out, that your name might be proclaimed, that your message might be lifted up, that your son might be magnified, and that all men will be drawn towards you. Father, we love you so much for what you've done and what you wish to do in our lives. For those of us that are, that are your servants and your saints, Lord, even though it feels like we're being worn down daily by the enemy, Father, I ask that you give us the strength to stand fast and that we might hold true as you are our shield and our buckler. You have put your arms around us and you're willing to fight with us and fight for us that we might see your kingdom grow and expand, that we might be able to be your partners as we see that happen. Again, Father, we love you and we thank you. We ask all these things in the name of your Son and our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I encourage you this week to go with God.